Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and actor Tracy Letts. The first time Tracy Letts participated in community theater, he knew he'd found something special. At school, Tracy was shy and had a hard time connecting with his peers. But when he discovered the camaraderie surrounding the theater, he finally felt embraced by a community. And though he loved it, he initially didn't think he was very good. His father, also an actor, taught him the power of speaking simply rather than proclaiming. As Tracy says, I went on stage and I said my lines simply and truthfully. It was my first real acting lesson. After that, I was hooked. After graduating from high school, Tracy was eager to start his life and decided against going to college. He landed in Chicago, which had a rich and booming theater scene. When he wasn't auditioning, he filled his free time writing and decided to try to create a film noir for the stage. Killer Joe, a play about a brutal and murderous family in Texas, was Tracy's first attempt and it became a massive success, ending up on the West End of London and establishing him as a bona fide playwright. It was around that time he realized he was also an established addict, and with the help of his father, decided to get sober. In the years since, Tracy's continued to write and act, and continued to work on himself. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his play August Osage County, based on his own family's deeply troubled history. And in addition to his acting work on stage, he's been in a number of projects on TV and in film, such as Homeland, Lady Bird, and most recently, Ford vs. Ferrari. There's an empathy that suffuses all of Tracy's work, and it all stems from his desire to achieve self-acceptance. As he says, it's hard to give yourself a break, isn't it? You can't just decide to do it. It's not an act of will. It takes actual work. Whether that means getting sober, getting into therapy, writing or acting in plays, or paying attention and really listening to other people. Tracy joins off-camera to talk about working with his father in August Osage County, how great art comes from great questions, and why his career trajectory basically comes down to chasing a girl. So pull up a chair and listen in. Have you had anybody burst into tears? Have you had anybody storm out? No one's ever stormed out. Not that I'm planning on this being the best, the worst. That might make it both the best and the worst. <laughs> if you start by bursting into tears and then eventually you storm out. <laughs> um, okay, you ready to start, Nate? Hi, Tracy. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. I wanted to have you on here because I loved you in Ladybird. Um, I always loved you in Homeland, The Lovers, uh, Christine. There's just something about seeing you on screen that draws me right into the story. And I've also, you know, I haven't seen your plays live, but I loved August Osage County. I read it and I watched the film. And so it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. And now you're in Ford versus Ferrari, mm -hmm. which is close to my heart because I grew up in an auto racing family, uh, and that was exciting. You play Henry Ford II. And I wanted to start there because I read something you said. You said you're a weeper. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wondered if that was an affliction that you've had your whole life, if, if you are quick to tears and, and if being a weeper is something that you've found helpful in your particular pursuit of a career? I don't know that it's been an affliction my whole life. I, I don't know. I've maybe gotten more sensitive or nostalgic or something as I get older. Yeah. So I'm easier to, uh, I'm quicker to weep perhaps 
more so than I was as a young man. Things, you know, the things that touch me, the things that touch you change as you get older. Yeah. So like uh, bravery. I find bravery very moving. Bravery in all of its forms. Someone rising up to something. Yeah. 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 Even, uh, even small challenges. That, that will make me weep. Generosity makes me weep. I don't necessarily weep at the things I, <laughs> that other people are weeping at. Sometimes speaking in front of people in my own voice makes me weep, and it's become kind of a standard joke if I'm, say, speaking a eulogy or something, where I've said more than once, I'm sorry if I start to weep, I'm just terribly moved at the sound of my own voice. <laughs> but I don't know, sometimes hearing my voice alone in a room with people, uh, I get self-conscious in a way, and so yeah, I. Yes, I am a weeper. I became more of a weeper when my kids went to school, where I would go see them in some sort of assembly. And it didn't matter if they were performing or, or just going up there to right. say two lines in a poem. What happens to me is I get this involuntary thing. Sometimes <laughs> it comes out as, as this strangled little yelp. <laughs> but I, you know, you've, you've just had a son recently, and I feel like there's gonna be a lot of weeping in your future. There's been a lot of weeping with him. I've yeah. wept a lot since he was born. It's good weeping. It's positive weeping. My wife is not a weeper. Really? Uh, she's, I've she... learned she's not really a weeper and she's not a laugher. We see a very funny movie and she really? won't laugh. And then when the movie's over, she says, oh, that was so funny. I say, yeah. Now, people <laughs> like... might be wondering, is your wife catatonic? But she's not. <laughs> she's an actor with all of her faculties. And... In fact, she's very, uh, she has a lot of energy. If she were here talking to you right now, she'd probably be laughing a lot, but uh, it would be... You don't be, make her laugh. <laughs> maybe that's more to the point. And I say to her, do you, did you hear what I just said? Do you recognize... it was really funny. Yeah, it was really funny. And she will say, well, that wasn't funny at all. But that, it, in fact, it was funny, and she should be laughing. <laughs> that's probably why you love her so much, because if... Getting the laugh is so hard. Yeah, maybe if she was an easy touch. Yeah. But she's not. In Ford versus Ferrari, you do some weeping. I do. Was that an easy thing to do, or was that hard to figure out how far you wanted to go with it? I had practiced it for myself. Do you practice in the mirror? No. No? No. So, so do you worry about how you look when you are going to no. weep? No. Uh, no, I can't worry about that. Yeah. I won't get anything done if I'm worried about that. But I, I, I just wondered what's the... What is the moment where you go from fear, excitement, adrenaline into weeping? What, what, what's the physical reality of that? How do you do that? So I had rehearsed it myself. Jim and I, Jim Mangold, the director, and yeah. I, we never talked about it. We knew it was a big moment in the script, and we knew we had to get it that day. And Jim provided the circumstances for it to happen, meaning I'm actually in the car, the car's being, Matt's in the seat beside me. He's not actually driving. We're being pulled by a camera rig, but one that gets up to 100 miles an hour. We got up to 100 miles an hour and doing some fishtailing and spinning around. And so you're hearing the sounds and you're smelling the gasoline and the burn rubber and then the car spins to a stop. And then we knew, you know, the cameras are already mounted on the car. So it was that, that's when the scene begins. So I did what I had rehearsed. And uh, Matt and I just played the scene as scripted. Turns out they mostly used the first take. 
though we did it several times. And, and is it a total fake cry, or are you hitting something real? Oh, I'm hitting something real. You are? Yeah. And is it related? Like, my daughter asked, Dad, was he really scared when they filmed that? <laughs> and I, and then I thought, you know, that, that's a pretty great question, yeah. but did you have to go someplace else for the actual thing to turn real for you? Well, the thing that was beautiful about the script was the idea that we've seen this guy with the lid on for so long, he, he's almost a, a, a monument. Right, we should say you play Henry Ford II. Henry Ford II. And II. you are a figurehead and you have the name and you're a legend. And, and yeah, so it comes, uh, it's completely unexpected when it happens. So the idea that there's a moment in the script where the, the gasket blows, the top pops off, and, and you see the vulnerability underneath, and then what is the vulnerability about? He's having a father-son moment. He's thinking about his dad, and he's sorry that his father can't be there to see this amazing car that he's helped develop. You know, that's, and that's easy stuff to tap into. You get into father-son stuff, that's, you know. You tap into your own dad there. Sure, of course, yeah. My dad's been dead 11 years, and uh, he was a big fan of mine. We were very close, but he was a big fan of mine as an actor as well, and so doing a movie like Ford versus Ferrari, and. Yeah, it's, that's an easy substitution to make as an actor. It's, it's the substitution you should make as an actor to, to be actually in the moment and experiencing the thing you're talking about. Right. And there's some truth there to wishing he could see you in a absolutely. $100 million film. Yeah, absolutely. With, yeah. He'd love it. Well, so your father was an English teacher. Your mother was an English teacher, right? And then they both had second careers later, yeah. following more of their passions, acting and writing. And you've turned into this amazing Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. And, but I would think if I grew up with two English teachers, I would want to be as far away from homework and corrections and <laughs> editing and, and, and that sort of critical eye as possible when I left school. And I was curious what, what they, how they instilled it in you, the love of the English language. Well, our household was filled with books and music and conversation and other professors and families and television and uh, I, my folks were bright, uh, smart, funny, curious people. And I mean, they were both critical. Uh, my father uh, could be critical of us. and. Yeah, they could, they could be tough in that regard, but we had such a desire to please them. I say we, two older brothers, and uh, my brother, who's six years older, became a musician, and he was a prodigy. And I think I was looking for my thing. I didn't know what my thing was. My folks were not pushing me toward anything, necessarily. I always liked writing. I liked writing stories. I had an imagination. I had a dark imagination. And my mom wrote and eventually would have an amazing second career as a, as a writer, though my folks were pretty, pretty far left, especially for a small town in Oklahoma. The household was very traditional, and my mom did everything, right? She cooked, she cleaned, she did the laundry, she took care of everything. Plus, she worked a full-time job. Plus, she wrote on the side, and I don't, I don't know how the hell she did it, really. Yeah. I, I actually don't know. And as a kid, was your dad sort of the heroic figure in your mind? 
Yeah, he was. He was. Isn't that funny how that works? Yeah. I, although I, I always had a real sympathy for my mother. I, 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 I noted even at a very early age that uh, the deck was stacked. I could tell the deck was stacked. It was like, she's having to do a lot more than everybody else here because it's all boys in the house. Right. And I recognized that. So I, I went to mom when I was a little kid and said, teach me how to cook. You did? Yeah. And she did, you know. Uh, or when they would go out, I would clean the house, you know, so the house would be clean when mom got home. So I was, I was trying to please both of my parents in different ways. Why do you think you were... A pleaser. I don't know. The youngest, uh, I don't know. Sensitive. Uh, I don't know. Sensitive. Yeah. No, it's a funny thing. Parenting creates the wiring for your children for a lot of the way they'll see themselves and the way they go out in the world, you know? So it, I'm always curious about that, especially with someone who became a very creative person is what was the environment that either contributed to that or they had to build up a resistance against it? Yeah, it's complicated because my folks were mercurial and the dynamic in the house shifted a lot over the years and the dynamic between them shifted. They were both strong personalities. But they stayed together. They did. They loved each other. They stayed together for 49 years. They not only loved each other, they had a, a great uh, passion uh, and curiosity about one another that stayed until they died. They, they stayed intensely curious people. And, uh, and they, they just genuinely loved each other a lot. But yeah, the dynamic could be, it shifted. It could be shifty. Yeah. My dad was, he, he could be very, especially when I was younger, as a young kid, he could be really temperamental. He could be very angry, scarily angry. Uh, not violent, but angry and, and in a way that scared us as kids. Uh, mom could could be right w wanting to wanting to keep that at bay or wanting to keep that away from us but mom had her own temper too and and of course circumstances in the house change I mean August Osage County is based on a true story yeah my mother's father committed suicide by drowning when uh, I was 10 years old my grandmother went through many years of uh, addiction to downers and just really put our family through hell, put my mother through hell. So dynamics like that, then uh, events like that changed the dynamics in the house. So you were in a place that was, it was, although it was stable from the outside, there was a lot of shifting tides within that you had to sort of, that makes sense that maybe trying to be a pleaser is that today may be a new day for how the whole thing is working, right? Yeah, I suppose. I do have a, uh, I have many great stories about both of my parents. This is not a great story about my dad. So I, I, I introduced that caveat. I know this isn't a great story about my dad. Please, but uh, I, we, we usually <laughs> like great stories on this show. Let's well, try something different. No, I, I don't mean that it's not, I mean it doesn't show him in the best light. Right. Um, I had written a book report uh, for school and I brought it down to my dad to read. I don't know why the hell I was showing my dad my book report. Again, pleasing, I guess, but I took it down and I showed it to my dad and he was watching TV and I handed it to him over the back of the couch. He took it and he read it while, while he's watching TV, right? So he casually reads it and then he hands it back without even looking at me. He hands it back and he says, take this back upstairs and rewrite it. My, my son doesn't write like that. 
Really? Yeah. I have what a Pulitzer Prize. That? That's the point of that goddamn story. <laughs> <laughs> Was he alive to see you get the Pulitzer Prize? He died six weeks before I got the award. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Is that poetic justice or irony? Uh, it's poetic te- injustice. Terribly sad irony. Gosh. Because we were we were very close. He was in the play, of course. Yeah, he played your grandfather, and he was fantastic in the part. My dad and I w- were great and very close. And I think it's a John Waters quote: "Anybody over the age of thirty still fighting with their parents is an asshole," <laughs> which uh, <laughs> I completely believe. Uh, and I, I got on great with my folks. I, I had a great relationship with my with my parents. Even when when I put dad in the play, uh, you know, it was not my idea. Uh, the director, Anna Shapiro, and her husband, Jan Barford, who was in the show, it was their idea. They said, why don't you put your dad in the play? And I said, oh, I got to think about that. I, uh, I want to think about that because the idea of, my, of your parent in your workplace watching you do your right. stuff. Was like, no, how, I'm imagining my mom sitting in here listening right, right now. And how would it impact the work you're yeah, doing? Yeah. You, how self-conscious would it make you? Right especially because my dad had, as I say, that keen editorial eye. And this is a piece of writing, and a piece of writing that, that concerned our family. Yeah. I thought, can I do the work I need to do on this play with my dad sitting there? Because my dad's always sitting there, in a sense. Still to this day, he's been dead 11 years. He's always sitting there. So he was always there when I wrote something. I thought, to have him in the room while I'm working on this, I, don't, I just wanted to think about it. And I thought about it. And I thought, no, I'm cool. I, I'm cool. I, I'm confident enough in the work that I do and the job I have to do that I can not only accept my father there, I, I want him there. He'll, he will be great in the show. He will have great contributions to the script. And it'll be a fun thing that we get to do together. Yeah. And it turned out to be all of that and more. It was fantastic. It Gosh. was a great experience. You know, I was a late bloomer. I, I'm tall now, but I was I was a uh, short kid who hit puberty late, who was bullied, was had a rough time in high school, and it took a long time for the person I was inside to match the person I was outside. That's uh, I could say all of those same things about myself. Is that true? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, I was curious if you think that contributed to you becoming an artist or, do you, or do you, if you think it almost derailed you becoming an artist. I, I certainly think it contributed to me becoming an artist. But, you know, if I'm honest with you, why wouldn't why I be? Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> if I'm You've honest with you. You've won a Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> for God's sakes. I can sit here and talk like, like I knew what the fuck I was doing at any point in my life. I, I rarely have I felt that. Rarely have I felt that kind of solidity. Certainly before I was 40, I didn't feel a lot of that solidity of, I know what I'm doing, I know what my next thing is, I know who I am, I know what I want, I know how to say what I want, I know how to say what I don't want. I don't think I felt any of that very strongly before I was 40 years old. It all just seems like blind fumbling. Right. School, to me, every day was sort of a, a trial that you had to make it through. Yeah. I hated it. Home was the safe place. I, I'm told that I've, that I've blown this out of proportion. I'm told by others who knew me at the time that I have this wrong. 
That's but my perception was that I was deeply unpopular in school. I never had a girlfriend in school. And I got bullied up to a point, I mean, through middle school, not so much high school, just because I kind of removed myself from a lot of stuff in high school, socially. I had a, a few friends. Uh, but yeah, I, I continued to do band. You know, marching band fulfilled the PE requirement. <laughs> so you didn't have to do PE. Right? If you did marching band in the winter semester, you didn't have to do any, anything else. And then I would have to find something in the spring. So one year it was golf. I, uh, you know, golf, come on, it was ridiculous. I can't play a lick of golf. Uh, tennis, I was the worst tennis player in this, you know, something to fulfill right. the spring athletic requirement. So yeah, I, I, I think of it uh, mainly as social awkwardness uh, and, and what felt like uh, being ostracized. But I'll tell you the truth, I also think now back to that time, it's like, get out of yourself, man. I, 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 everything was so, it was all just self, right? There was no part of me that was taking in the other kids in school and what they were going through. And I think about some of the kids I knew at the time uh, not only some of the troubled kids I knew at the time, but some of the kids I knew at the time who were good at that, who were good and helpful and good people and had kindness and generosity and empathy, awareness of other people. I had none of that. It was like 20 years later before I went, oh shit, there were other people in that school. Well, so, so was there a moment where you realized, oh, I, I like performing? I, like, to me, I, it's hard to, it's hard to, square the idea of feeling like you want to remove yourself and you're antisocial with I like the feeling of performing and I want to put myself out there and like when did those two things come together? So when I was 15 years old uh, there was a woman in our town who directed community theater Katie Morris was her name she was directing in Tishomingo Oklahoma which is about an hour away she was directing a production of the solid gold Cadillac and she asked my dad to be in it he said no. He didn't want to drive an hour to Tishomingo to do rehearsals. He didn't want to do that. So she asked me to be in it. I was 15. She knew that if I did it, Dad had to drive me. <laughs> if he had to drive me, he you might as well be in the play. You were just a pawn in their game. That's right. And it worked. I said worked. yes, and Dad said, all right, I'll do it. And he drove me. We did. Really? So my first play was with my dad. Solid Gold Cadillac. I don't think it was a great production of the Solid Gold Cadillac. Turns out Solid Gold Cadillac is not a very strong play. But uh, there was a sense of community around us making this thing. And there was a, uh, I think she was runner-up to Miss Oklahoma who was in the show. She was interested in getting into acting. She was in the show. It's always a girl. And she liked me and paid attention to me at a time when, you know, going to high school and I, nothing. So. There was probably something in that in the social aspect right. of all of that. I said, "I give me more of that. Give me give me more of that social interaction, <laughs> attention from a woman. You know, in in any form, I, uh, uh, some acceptance." And did you also get the sense that you were decent at it? No, I'm sure I was terrible at it. I have no doubt I was terrible at it. And then I did a couple of other plays because I was trying to. 
repeat that experience. And then uh, I did a community theater production in my hometown of uh, uh, The Skin of Our Teeth by Thornton Wilder. And I played the telegraph boy and some ensemble parts. Totally on the cheap, you know, at the Choctaw Community Center in, in Durant. Uh, but my dad at one point, just as we were about to start performances, he said, why do you always sound like you're uh, proclaiming? Uh, why don't you just talk? Why don't you just say it? And I did, I'm, again, trying to please my dad, I, I just went out there and I said it. I said the words simply and truthfully. And I, it was my first real acting lesson. It was like, oh, the power of speaking simply and truthfully uh, in a room uh, has great impact. People can feel it. They can feel when somebody's speaking simply and truthfully. And I, then, I was, then I was hooked. And I did another community theater show and I started taking courses at the local college even though I was still a senior in high school and trying to be in plays. I just wanted to be in plays because I felt the power of that. And shortly thereafter, certainly, I said, well, this is what I, this is what I am. This is what I do. And so it was acting first before playwriting. Yes. So what did the English teacher parents think when you dropped out of college after one semester? Were they, how, how, the, how did the pleaser you know, my <laughs> folks were that. the first in their families to graduate from high school. And they wound up with advanced degrees. My father, because of the GI Bill, uh, wound up a PhD. He was a Fulbright scholar. I mean, uh, academia was their ticket. Yeah. And so when I declined uh, to go to college, well, I marvel at how... Uh, uh, how sanguine they were about my decision. Really? Yeah. There was a, they knew a guy who was recruiting for a college and he really wanted me to go and I didn't want to go. I chose not to go. And only- And was that because you just wanted to start your life and yeah. go out and audition? Yeah, and, and get the hell out of Duran, Oklahoma. I left town at 17, wanted to get the hell out. And this fellow talked to my folks and was concerned. He was like, Tracy should go to college, he should learn not only how to do this work, but he should learn other things too. And you know he should. And only in the last few years did I talk to this gentleman who told me the story of my father saying, he's not, that's not his path. He's not gonna do that. Hey folks, let's take a break from the conversation so I can tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week, Quip. Now, if you listen to this show, you know of Quip. It's my favorite electric toothbrush, and since I've gotten one, I haven't used anything else. And they want you to know one single discovery that matters the most for your dental care. It is simply this, that if you have good habits, you are good. That means brushing for two minutes a day, twice a day, and flossing regularly, no matter what brand you use. Quip makes that simple, starting with an electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and anti-cavity toothpaste. Now, I use all those things. I love the taste of the toothpaste. And they've just got the whole system down pat. Their electric brush has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to guide a full and even clean. And the Quip Floss Dispenser comes with pre-marked string to help you use just enough. 
Plus, Quip delivers fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping, so your routine is always right. You know, initially I was a little skeptical, like, why do we need a subscription service for a toothbrush? And now that I've done it, I don't know how I would do without it. It's so nice to never run out of toothpaste and to know that your electric toothbrush is always going to have batteries, you never have to plug it in, and you're always going to be able to take it on a trip and know that you're not going to run out of things. It's become an indispensable part of my bathroom routine, and if you haven't tried it, I'm telling you, it's a great system. You can join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip today, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash offcamera right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash offcamera. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash offcamera. Quip is the good habits company. Now back to the show. Take me ahead a little bit to when you started getting involved in in writing and and, and in... I guess that was before Steppenwolf that you started writing. Yeah. Like, what was the impulse to first start writing plays? I had kept up my writing my whole life. I had written a couple of uh, screenplays. After high school, I went to Dallas. I lived there for a couple of years, tried to make a go of it in Dallas. It turns out it's rather hard for actors to make a go of it in Dallas. At the time, they were making... Let me stop you there really quick. Why did you not just go straight to New York? I was scared. I'm yeah. sure I was scared of New York. I didn't know anything about it except from the movies. Uh, I didn't know anything about what the life of an actor in New York meant. Uh, it just seemed too foreign to me. Dallas was 100 miles away. I could come home on the weekends and my mom would do my laundry. So I went to Dallas and worked in fringe theater for a couple of years. And I was broke and drunk and... Uh, I did a, did a few plays, but it was clear I wasn't going to make a living in Dallas. And a guy came and offered me a job uh, touring Norway and Sweden, playing the romantic lead in Barefoot in the Park. And I did that for four months when I was 20 years old. It was a great gig. God, what a great adventure. It was a great adventure. I fell in love. My girlfriend moved from uh, Dallas to Chicago. And I... I swear to God, I don't remember, but I followed her where we were in. It was like, why don't you come up? I don't remember how. I but feel I, like your career has basically been defined by, you know, first it was Miss Runner-Up, Oklahoma. Then <laughs> <laughs> you follow a girl to Chicago. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely true. I met my wife doing a play. Right. I mean, that's absolutely true. When I, you know, we came back to Dallas and then I went up to Chicago to see her and I, I fell in love with Chicago. I fell in love with the city and the... And what a vibrant theater scene and there's improv and there's... there's I didn't know anything about it. Right. I didn't know anything about it. I, the only thing any of us knew about Chicago in Dallas was John Malkovich was in Places in the Heart and was nominated for an Academy Award. And at the same time, that uh, production of True West was that Steppenwolf famously did with Malkovich and Sinise was put on PBS. And so we all heard about this theater company, Steppenwolf Theater Company. And it was a bunch of kids from Illinois State University who had gone to Chicago and started a, a, a company in a church basement. And suddenly they were getting nominated for Academy Awards and the scene there was really booming. 
So I go to Chicago and I start acting in plays and you have a lot of downtime. So I, I, I decided I would write a play. I was reading a lot of Pulp Fiction at the time and I just thought while I was reading it, gee, I wonder if this would work on stage. I've never seen it on stage. And I knew I could get it done if, I, if it was purpose built. I'm gonna write a play, a single set, five characters, uh, I had read a story in a newspaper about a murderous Florida family. I, I changed it to Texas, and, uh, and that was Killer Joe. And uh, yeah. I thought I was, you know, my only desire was to write this play. I didn't consider myself a playwright. I didn't call myself a play. Oh, I'm an actor playwright. I was an actor who had written a play and was trying to get my play done. And after a couple of years, people... It was an, a lot of nonsense, people predicting walkouts and people are going to get bent out of shape. It was going to be, I don't know, a lot, of, a lot of nonsense. I finally got the play done at a small theater in Evanston, Illinois. Very small, 40-seat black box theater. Really? And uh, board members there at the theater quit. They were so enraged by this piece. It's very dark. It's, very, it's a very... It's a very dark story. Yeah. And uh, we got it done. And I got panned horribly by pretty much everybody. But Richard Christensen, uh, the lead critic of the Chicago Tribune, gave us a great review. And, and kind of started my playwriting career. Suddenly I was a bit of a playwright. Yeah, because he not only gave it a great review, he had a lot of sway in the community at the time. And he had a little box with a hits and misses or picks and pans or whatever the hell right, you call right. it. He put our play in there. It would be in there every week. And he included in the parentheses after the play, warning, contains graphic violence and nudity or whatever the hell it You're was. You're like, thank you very much. And we just, you know, sold like hotcakes. Yeah. And I had, I had intention, I mean, even the posters we made for the thing, I was the one sitting there going, it's rated X. People under 18 not admitted of this stuff. And it wasn't because I was trying to sell tickets, though that was in fact a byproduct. I just didn't want to hit people over the head with a chair when they, that's not the experience they wanted. I, you know, it was an adult play. It's sure. like, hey, yeah, you, yeah. if this is the experience you want, come in and you'll get it. And the play was a big hit and ran for a long time. And somebody came and saw it and said, you should take this to the Edinburgh Festival. We took it there. It was a big hit in Edinburgh. A bunch of London producers came and saw it. Uh, the Bush Theater in London won the day, and they said, we want to do this in our theater. And so we took the show to London, the same cast, and we did it at the Bush Theater in London, and then Michael Codron, who was a, a, a venerable uh, Broadway uh, uh, West End producer and had produced all of Pinter's works, came to see it, and he said, this should be on the West End. And he took it to the West End and were it ran on the West End for four months. Point, yeah, I was shocked. You were. And when I went to London, I, now at the same time that show was going to London, I got cast in Picasso with the Le Panagile, the Steve Martin play at Steppenwolf. It played in L.A., right? It did. And I was in it. Okay. Uh, I did 468 performances of Picasso with the Le Panagile. It's where I got my equity card. And I was broke all the time, so it was a, it was a good living. And so I stuck with the show, even while my play went off to London. I, I took a week's vacation from the show here in L.A., and I went to London to see Killer Joe. And that was, that was the first time I realized, oh, shit, I'm a playwright. 
because these people in London didn't know anything about my acting. It's so hard to reconcile that with that moment of your dad passing the paperback <laughs> and the and the self-critic and and your mind's just exploding that like that you can be that and and it's your first attempt. I and mean, my parents hated Killer Joe. They did. They hated it. I was said your dad to them, like, of my course. son doesn't write like this. <laughs> no, you know what they said? Dad said, this is an excellent piece of writing, and there's a lot of energy in the writing. I hate this play. I hate what happens in this play. I hate, I, I, they hated it. And they delighted in its success. <laughs> I sure. mean, they just loved it. Yeah. They, they loved telling the story about how much they had hated the show and, and how... <laughs> What a big hit the show was. So, so when this is becoming a big hit and you're already in L.A., is your thought now, maybe I can go out and get some quick cash writing screenplays? Yeah. How'd that work out? It didn't. It didn't. It didn't work out at all. Turned out they weren't interested in what I was selling, and uh, I, I, don't, I wasn't selling thing. anything anyway. What a weird thing to be doing 400-plus performances of a play. Your play is on West End. And then you're trying to figure out Los Angeles at the same time. Yeah. Now, were you still drinking at that point? No, I'd gotten so I sobered up three weeks after the premiere of Killer Joe in Chicago. Really? Yeah. What prompted that? Oh. Especially with all the social events surrounding your play, going to all these lovely places in Europe. I know. You couldn't even raise a stein. Of no, a, I n- never raised a stein. Never, never. I never drank a Guinness in my life. What prompted that? Did you? My life had uh, was. It seems like rock bottom is not the time when your play gets taken to the West End. Doesn't seem like it, but rock bottom doesn't necessarily have to do with the the outside success. Yeah, yeah. It's all internal. So what was going on? I was drinking excessive amounts, and I was in a relationship with a woman who I loved deeply, and I left her in a in a in an in an ugly way, and uh, I was not uh, not good to myself and not good to other people. And was that, was was there some something you were trying to outrun, or were you living this crazy life of an artist, or? I don't know. You don't know, you just. Really... I mean, it's all hindsight. In yeah. the moment I'm in it, I don't, I don't know what the fuck I'm well, doing. Well, what was the moment that made you say, I gotta stop this? Uh, my dad flew to Chicago. This is a father-son story. Aren't they all for, for guys? They really are. For guys, they're all father-son stories. My dad flew to Chicago, and he, somebody had called him and told him, said, Tracy's in a bad way. He's making some mistakes. So your behavior was spilling out into other... Oh, yeah. And my dad showed up just to say he was worried about me, and that he loved me, and he hoped I would get some help for my problem. He, you know, there's no... He didn't drag me off to Betty Ford. He didn't shackle me to the radiator. He just let me know that he was concerned about me and that in his experience, there was not much he could do other than let me know that I was loved and he was concerned. And it was a, I mean, for whatever reason, that was a a wake-up call, and I decided to, I, I talked to a friend of mine who was in AA. I knew she was in AA, and I talked to her and said, I think maybe I have a drinking problem. And she said, in my experience, if you think maybe you have a drinking problem, you have a drinking problem. Yeah. So she took me to my first meeting, and I walked in the AA meeting and went, hey, everybody. You know, it's just like, I recognize all you motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They were all the people that were showing up to your place. Yeah, like, look. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. 
God, thank God you're a pleaser, right? Yeah. Your dad came and said, this isn't good, and you're like, I'm done. And I was, and I haven't had a drink since, August 27th, 1993. Wow. Well, when I think of August Osage County, I think of generations of, of abuse and cycles of bad parenting and unchecked issues that needed to be dealt with in that play. And, 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 and we all recognize the scene at the dinner table to varying degrees. We've right. all been at a dinner table with extended family and realized how messed up we all are. Right. But to be able to write something like that and have so much of that material, that source material, be autobiographical, it does make me wonder if all of your playwriting and your desire to express yourself that way was leading up to trying to figure your family out. I think that's probably the case, sure. Uh, uh, you know, I, how long did it take me to write August Osage County? 30 years. That's kind of the joke, right? It was, how old were you when you wrote it? 40. Oh, uh, and you were 10 when your yeah. grandfather committed suicide. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I put all my thoughts and feelings about my family and my extended family in there. There's a great moment in the show uh, at the dinner table, in the dinner table scene. Violet, the grandmother, says something very nasty to the, to the kid, to Jean. And the actors, Amy Morton and Jeff Perry, who did it in the original production, as soon as Violet lashed out at Jean, they always wanted to turn, Amy and Jeff, and comfort Jean and check in with her and put their hands on her and make sure she was all right, and I wouldn't let them do it. I said, don't pay any attention to her. You don't pay any attention to her. And they couldn't fathom it. They were like, what? Jeff is a parent, Amy's not, but they, they just couldn't fathom that they wouldn't take care of their teenage daughter in that moment. Why do we not take care of her? I was like, because you, you've taken your eye off the ball. You're not a bad parent. You're having a bad moment as a parent. It's not a good parenting moment, right? My dad was a great parent. No son of mine writes like that. It's not a great parenting moment. And I, again, I was 10 years old. There wasn't a lot of concern for me when my grandfather committed suicide. They just, they had their, they had their hands full. Their, their, their minds were occupied with other stuff. They were reeling, and they took their eye off the ball. And my dad asked me when I was writing it, he said, why are you writing this? And I said, well, you know, those events have haunted me for 30 years. He said, they have? <laughs> yeah, they have. He's like, didn't I buy you an ice cream? We were all good. It just hadn't occurred to them. It still hadn't occurred to them until we went to Did work on it. Did it not occur to him that there was some collateral damage? No. Isn't that funny? Different generation, different, you know. My dad, as I say, had grown up in terrible poverty, had been homeless for a time as a kid. Uh, my dad had had, a, had had a hard time of it as a kid. And, you know, our lives as kids, comparatively, were so soft. There's no war. No. No war, no depression. No, no, no. So soft. How could we be suffering any, anything? Right. You know, it's just a... I think it's so natural. I think it's so human that, that you don't... You don't necessarily notice that stuff. I think ideas about parenting have changed so much Very in just much. a couple of generations. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, uh, I, I, have, I have no resentment about that. I have nothing but uh, forgiveness for that. Even when I gave the script to my mom finally to read after I was done with it, and my mom's first comment was, I mean, and she was troubled by it. She had to kind of collect herself to talk to me, and she collected herself, and she, the first thing she said was, you've been very kind to my mother. You're kidding me. No. Meaning Violet. Yeah. Who comes off as... Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel for you. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the ancillary benefits that come from the pursuits that we think are artistic. And, and really, maybe what we're doing without knowing it is re-educating ourselves or rewiring ourselves. Yeah. All the writing I've done has taken a big piece out of me, and it's all I've learned from everything I've written. Not always in the moment. Sometimes it's a little bit later. I look back and I say, oh, that's what that was teaching me. That's what I was trying to work out. That's what I was occupied, preoccupied with. That's what I was, I was trying to get at something with that play. I didn't even know it when I was working on it, but ultimately that's why I was working on it. What do you think you were really trying to get to there? Acceptance. acceptance. Forgiveness, acceptance. Yeah. 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 Looking at my fam my my great big fucked up family and not only accepting it, but of course what we learned from the play and the success of the play was, oh, everybody's got a great big fucked up family. Everybody. And if they say they don't, they're lying. Well, when you say acceptance, you, you may be referring to accepting the mistakes that your family made, but maybe what it is is, is the acceptance of, us, of, of that collective information that we can all be a little kinder to ourselves because, because that's going on for all of us. Man, if my plays could do that, if any one play of mine could do that, then, I mean, what more can you strive for as, a, as an artist? Especially as a playwright, since we're all you know, human beings in a room together. That's what I love about being a playwright. It's what I love about the theater. The vulnerability of human beings sharing a space together. Do you think it gives you uh, a greater understanding of human behavior? Like, just the act of having to do it, having to be honest with yourself of, what would this character say now? That applies to me not only as a writer, but as an actor as well. I, I'm, I'm quite sure that's why I do these things. You know, I, I had my son 19 years ago. He's the first child I've ever had. 19 months ago? Yes. What did you I said 19 years ago? That's I thought, some, does he have another son? That's some kind of Freudian <laughs> slip, isn't it? <laughs> you want to say that? All right. Let me get on the couch and think about what that means. <laughs> I had my son 19 months ago. He's my first, he's my only child. And uh, if I had had a kid in my 20s, in my 30s, I, I shudder to think the parent I would have been because I've gained a lot of acceptance and humility, I, I hope, uh, from acting in writing, acting in plays and writing plays. Yeah. That's where I've learned, a, I've learned an awful lot about human beings from doing that. I want to ask you, um, you said something about when you came back, you left LA. I get the sense that you've had sort of two waves of an acting career. 
Because I remember you from Seinfeld. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you did a few Law and Orders, because everyone did, probably, right? Or, never did a Law are, are you the only actor in history that's never done a Law and Order? You know, I finally got cast. I had auditioned for it a few times. Yeah. I finally got cast in one, and it was just something good was happening. I was making a little money. Uh, and uh, I actually asked. They said, all right, we've booked you on Law and Order. I can't remember which one it was. So they said, uh, it's one day's work. Uh, we want you to come out to Queens and Vincent D'Onofrio is going to throw you up against a fence all day. And I said, what, what do I get paid for that? And they said, $500. And I said, not worth it. <laughs> so I almost got the sense that you, you were kind of done with film and TV. Because I read this thing, that you came back to Chicago, you got accepted into Steppenwolf, uh -huh. and you felt like you were home. And I wanted to ask you about that, because I think that was around the time in your brain, you say you took a vow of poverty. Yeah. I wanted to ask if there was a correlation between feeling like you were home and deciding that finding your community and your people was better than the ambition that we all think we have to keep pushing for to reach the next level of success and the next level of success. And if you got to a certain point where you felt like you could sacrifice that ambition for a place where you felt like you could really be your artistic best self. Is that what you meant by taking a vow of poverty? That's such a good way of putting it. Again, I certainly didn't have any consciousness of that in the moment. I did actually have a, you know, I came out to LA when I was 32. And the first thing I booked was Seinfeld. Okay. Right out of the box. The then, famous Festivus episode. Yes. And then my girlfriend of seven years, she died when we were both 32 years old. We'd moved oh, to sorry. LA four months before. We moved here in September of 97, and she died in January of 98. Oh. I mean, I, there's no way to describe to you or the people watching what that experience was like. It was, uh, I was blown away. But I stayed in Los Angeles. I mean, Chicago was uh, a ghost town for me. To go back to Chicago at that point wasn't possible. So I stayed in LA and tried to get work. And I strung together a few things. I did a Drew Carey show. I did, uh, uh, I can't even remember the name of these goddamn shows, the District Profiler, you know, and did, did, did write these, these shows. I did little, little, little parts on these shows. And none of it was satisfying. Someone right now that wrote the District Profiler is like, hey. <laughs> I, I'm sure, I'm sure. You know, th that was a money gig for them, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and none of it was satisfying to me, and I wasn't getting any quality work done, and I got into another relationship way too quick, uh, and then that relationship ended. And that was the point at which I realized how much I was... Well, so that time spans from the ages of 32 to 36. Okay. And the phone is not ringing at 36. And... I guess I also probably had a moment in there where I realized, oh, I'm not going to be a leading man in the films. That's not going to happen for me. Right? There comes a point where whatever, you, those dreams, you, you, you have to adapt <laughs> a little bit. Just, your dreams adapt a little bit. And you, you recognize, oh, that's not going to happen for me. That's not the, that's not my, it's not the way I'm going with this. And... I loved working in the theater, and there's little theater culture here in Los Angeles. So I went back to Chicago. And yeah, I took a vow of poverty, because I knew you couldn't make any money in Chicago. 
I knew you couldn't parlay a, a, a role in Chicago into a TV series, right? Chicago doesn't make stars. It doesn't make money. It just makes work. And you get good at your job working in Chicago. That's why so many great stage actors come out of Chicago. So I went back to Chicago. I didn't have any fucking money. You know, I had a fork. <laughs> I didn't have anything. Did you ever consider quitting altogether or, or never. never? And I didn't want to do anything else. The truth is that I loved it. I loved, I loved it. I didn't love film and TV. I, w I wasn't having experiences in film and TV that were satisfying for me. I didn't have that sense of community I had in the theater. I'd show up, you didn't know anybody's name. People expected you to knock it out of the park. You back to that sort of antisocial, awkward yeah, thing. Yeah, totally awkward, totally awkward. Uncomfortable. And then, then people think like, oh, what's, like, like I'm stuck up or something. It's like I'm just shy and awkward and don't know how to conduct myself. And, you can't put together enough days or weeks in a row uh, to, to get relaxed at the work. So I took the vow of poverty and went back to Chicago and said, I'll do this. And a few years later, I wrote August Osage County and the vow of poverty went away. That's the thing that is so beautiful to me about your story is that you were gonna go to the place where you felt comfortable and in your community and, and when, when you, decided consciously that it was okay to be there, then you really grew into the person you're supposed to be. Yeah, I think that's true. I, and still... I mean, it's a simplified version. Sure, and it still took me even a long time after that before... I mean, I was still uh, making mistakes in relationships, and I was still not having healthy relationships. I got into, you know, even in my sobriety, and even after, you know, a after Holly died, uh, I made I made some terrific mistakes. Uh, I didn't uh, I didn't do some of the work I needed to do after she died. It took me a while to get to the work, and so made some mistakes in relationships and stuff. Uh, I, I kind of consider myself the well. There's no bad guys, but I I, I wasn't uh, I maybe wasn't as I just wasn't as strong as I would like to think I am. And so I got into therapy. I got into a lot of therapy. I did seven straight years of therapy in Chicago and helped a lot. Yeah, I want to close with something. You said that you couldn't have gotten married before writing August Osage County. Huh. And I was curious what piece you thought was missing that that experience filled. Well, again, acceptance. And, you know, I talk about acceptance. I mean, it's self-acceptance. It's giving yourself a break. It took me a long time in my life to get to a point where I would give myself a break. Things I wish I had done better, ways in which I wish I had behaved better, more respectfully, more ethically, I don't know. Uh, uh, letting myself down. And it took a while before I got to the point where I could start to give myself a break and say, you're, you know, you're, you're a good guy and you're trying, trying your best and you're working on yourself. What do you think when, when you don't give yourself a break? What do you think that does? Do you think it's, it's just exhausting? Like, <laughs> yeah, it is. You know what I mean, like, because I, I can be really hard on myself to this day, and obviously you go through certain trials in your life where you're harder on yourself because times are harder too. And when, I think when times are harder, 
you turn it inward, and maybe that's even the mark of a good person, but it feels like you're just being really hard on yourself. And, and I wonder if, if you actually broke the pattern enough to notice that it did, it did sap energy and, and take away from the creative, uh, you know, from the ability to be creative. Yeah. Yeah, saps energy. It's just not, it's not healthy, it's not helpful, it's not helpful to myself, it's not helpful to my loved ones. Uh, but god damn it's hard it's hard to give yourself a break uh, uh, isn't it <laughs> yes <laughs> yes it is it, it's hard it, 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 you can't just decide to do it it's not an act of will it, it's a much longer process than that it takes work takes actual work, whether that means getting sober or getting into therapy or writing plays or acting in plays, paying attention, listening to other people. Sometimes it's hard, you know, the, the more I've done this work as an actor, whether it's on film, TV, on stage, it's all listening. It, it, the skill is listening. If you can listen, you can do, you can do anything as an actor. That's the skill, is listening. And it's so fucking hard so many actors are bad at it. At just like, shut up, quiet the noise, and listen to the other person. Listen to what they're saying. Stop the self-talk and just listen and hear what they're trying to communicate. It's it's hard to do, but it's man, it's satisfying when you do it. Well, I could talk to you for hours about this, and and I hate that we're out of time. But you said something earlier about if you could write a play that helps someone else feel any kind of that acceptance or anything, that would be a hell of a thing to be able to do. And, and I think that's just what you've done. And I think that I respond to your performances in the same way I respond to your writing, in that there is something there that is shared and there's empathy. And I, I just admire what you do so much. And I'm looking forward to see what you do next. Um, and I, I wish I had more time to talk to you. Because you're a fascinating guy. That's very generous. Thank you. And you didn't weep and you didn't storm out. So Not yet. <laughs> Listen, if you're <laughs> if you're gonna storm out, will you will you do it really low so that you don't you know. No, but thank you very much for, for being so candid and open. My pleasure. I appreciate that. It was you great bet. talking to you. Great. Hey folks, that's our show. I feel like we had one of the most candid conversations from one of the most restless and intuitive minds I've ever had the chance of experiencing. I love talking to Tracy because I've always loved his work as an actor and I got to dive deeper into his plays and into his writing career and hearing him talk about his father and hearing him talk about his family and how difficult part of that experience was really gave me insight into his writing and made me realize that the more human we are, the more honest we are, the more truthful we can be, the greater the art that comes out always is. So I really enjoyed that. And if you do want to see Tracy storm out and weep, go see Ford versus Ferrari because he does some 
pretty serious weeping in there, and I think he does some storming out too, so you get a twofer. And you should also check him out in Homeland and Lady Bird and Little Women and pretty much anything he's ever done because he always brings an electricity and a humanness to the screen, and I just love his work, and I'll always tune into a Tracy Letts project. And by God, I'm going to go see one of his plays too because I haven't had that experience yet. I've read them, and I would love to see one live. If you want to see more of Off Camera, you should go to offcamera.com because you're listening to this podcast right now, which we truly appreciate and we think you should subscribe to so you don't ever miss another episode. But we are also a television show and you can see what you've been listening to. You can find us on DirecTV's Audience Network and AT&T U-verse, where new episodes air every Monday night at 9 p.m. But if you don't have either of those services, you can still see the show by going to offcamera.com and subscribing to our television subscription service. For $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show we've ever made. That's 216 and counting. And you can have access to watch them as many times as you want on any device of your choosing. It's a great way to take a deep dive into the show and to support the show. So if you want to see these conversations and watch these thoughts form on these iconic artists' faces, then check out our subscription service. It's a great deal and it really supports the show. So love for you to check that out. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. You can feel really connected with the show by checking those things out. But also, you can use those platforms to share your love of this show. And we would really appreciate that because the more people that find us mean the longer we can keep doing this show. So if you love what we're doing and you want to suggest a guest or give a comment or a criticism, or if you just want some bad advice, go on social media and tell the world about us. And I will try my best to reply. I also try my best to reply when you send me an email. So if you have a longer story to share or you have something to tell me or you want to give me your famous recipe for Al Pastor Tacos... I am wide open for that. I'm Sam at offcamera.com. So send me an email. I want to thank everyone that works on this show each week. We're a nice, tight little family at this point. We've been doing this a long time, and I'm very lucky that everyone that does this show cares about it as much as I do, or at least they pretend to. No, but I think they really do. And we all feel the benefit of getting to do a really creative job and getting to come into contact with some really iconic creative artists and I couldn't make the show without these people's help. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. I owe a debt of gratitude to all of them. And I owe a debt of gratitude to you for tuning in and listening. Thank you for that. And I'll see you next time off camera.